0: Welcome to Funny Cause It's True. True stories told by funny people. I'm your host, Kevin McGeehan. The show is recorded live every other Tuesday at the Second City Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. Storytellers are either predetermined or chosen randomly on the night of the show, and this podcast is a mixed bag of some of my favorites. The theme of this episode is High Hopes, featuring stories of politics, parrot heads, and cannabis. Mark Warzeka witnesses a room full of Jimmy Buffett fans get blatantly bamboozled. Seth Whiteberg meets his idol, Rahm Emanuel and learns what it's like to level the playing field. Ruthie Holmes smuggles an illegal substance in a way that only a lady can. And, eh, gosh darn it, I do something kind of sweet for my mama. But let's not dawdle. Let's get right to it. First up, Mark Worzeka.
1: Guys, this is a story about survivor's guilt. I used to do a lot of corporate comedy And um, I didn't know anything about corporate comedy before I started doing it. But it turns out there's a huge industry of corporate comedy. And basically what happens is – companies usually they're mid-sized to large companies they'll have like a yearly seminar where they have a bunch of workshops and things over a period of days for all their employees and they'll bring people in during that time like special guest speakers motivational speakers but a lot of times it's musicians comedians entertainment and i started doing a lot of corporate comedy for a while and like big names do corporate comedy which i also didn't know like uh, we, we did a, I did a bunch of shows with Martin Short, and every corporate show he does, he makes $100,000 per performance. Jay Leno does one every Saturday night for $150,000. Yeah, it's huge money. We did a bunch with Hall & no- Oh, Elton John. You can get Elton John to play at your corporate event for a 25-minute or 50-minute show for 250000 or $500,000. <laughs> So, uh, so like, this like, like I never knew this, but like huge names do corporate comedy. But this particular gig that I'm talking about today was a gig with the Second City, and Second City does a lot. And this one was uh, for a, a accounting firm, and they were based in Texas. But the uh, they had done, well, they had like a bunch of shitty years. And this year was like a great year for them. They'd done really well, and they flew all the employees for a week to this uh, resort on uh, Amelia Island, Florida. On the ocean, it was beautiful. And we're there all week with them. We're doing workshops. We're doing shows and stuff. And, uh, you know, you get to know the employees because you're kind of like with them every day on breaks or smoke breaks or whatever you talk. And as we're going through the week, they were saying, this is so great, you know, that we did so well. They were so proud of themselves. We've done well. We had a great year. And at the end of the the week, the company is throwing this big party, and they're going to have a nice dinner for us, and they're going to have drinks in an open bar. And we're not supposed to know this, but they've hired Jimmy Buffett. Jimmy Buffett is going to perform at this show. So they are very excited, and they're saying it all week. They're saying, Jimmy Buffett, Jimmy Buffett. We're not supposed to know, but Jimmy Buffett, we've done so well, the company got Jimmy Buffett to come perform to us. So they're all, like, hyped up. They're all talking about it. So it's the end of the thing, the last day, and the vice president of the company comes up to us, and she says, you know, you guys did great. We loved having you. Tonight we're having dinner and drinks and a party. Do you want to come? So we all say, of course, because we think, Drinks and dinner, and Jimmy Buffett will be there. And we go, and it's a very nice dinner, and we enjoy the open bar. The open bar is great. And then the vice president comes up to our table, and she says, boy, are you guys going to be excited? We have a huge surprise coming up in a minute. And we said, yeah, we know. We already heard. All your employees know Jimmy Buffett is here tonight. And she says, no, that's the surprise. And we said, no, we know. And she said, no, you don't understand. It's not Jimmy Buffett. We got a Jimmy Buffett impersonator to come play the show, and we've been spreading the rumor that Jimmy Buffett is coming. They're gonna be so surprised. So this is, like, the worst surprise of all time, right? Like, Christmas morning, instead of gifts, you get, I don't know, a pile of dog shit. I don't know. It's the worst surprise ever. So she says, you guys want to stay and watch the show? So we said, yeah, of course, because we're like, what is this train wreck going to be? So she gets up on stage, and she says, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we've had such a great year. We're so proud of everyone, and they're all excited. And she's like, and we've got a special surprise for you. Please welcome... Jimmy Buffett! She introduces this fucking guy as Jimmy Buffett. They go crazy because they thought Jimmy Buffett was coming. They all leap out of their seats, they run out onto the dance floor, and out comes not Jimmy Buffett. Out comes this guy. But it's all like happening so fast, and they thought Jimmy Buffett was coming that they don't even know at first. Because this guy comes out and he looks kinda like Jimmy Buffett. He's got, like, gray hair and a tan and a Hawaiian shirt, and he's a professional Jimmy Buffett impersonator. So he comes in, and they immediately break into Margaritaville, and everyone's dancing, and no one knows what's going on at first. And then we're not dancing, so I'm, like, watching the dance floor, and you see, like, a guy kind of stop dancing and look (laughs) and whisper, and then the other people stop And eventually everyone just stops dancing, and they're all just looking at this dude. And he finishes Margaritaville, and everyone just turns and goes straight back to the open bar and starts ordering drinks. And we left, and I I came back in like a couple hours later and looked, and there were like eight people left doing like this sad conga line, and he was still playing, but... The sad thing is I don't even give a shit about Jimmy Buffett. I've never listened to Jimmy Buffett. I don't care about Jimmy Buffett. But these people really did. They really wanted to see Jimmy Buffett. And the very next weekend, I happened to be in Las Vegas on a gig at the Flamingo. And it was the opening of Jimmy Buffett's Margaritaville restaurant. And I got to see the real Jimmy Buffett. (laughs) Perform for an hour and closed the show by playing the song Margaritaville and I have had survivor's guilt ever since thank you
0: next up Seth Whiteberg
2: uh, my whole life um, despite my best efforts I- I've always been short um, and Uh, when you're short, it really does affect your entire worldview, because you spend so much time uh, reaching up for things, like, literally, like, paper towels on high shelves uh, that you just can't get to, and and, and you never hear studies about, like, how happy short people are, um, or how successful short people are, so a lot of the time, you just feel small, and I would always let myself feel small, Um, so I was always on the lookout for, like, other short people who were, like, kicking ass, you know, like short people who are doing well out there. And I found the king of the badass ass-kicking short people when I first learned who Rahm Emanuel was. Um, I first learned who Rahm was uh, a number of years ago. I was living in Chicago. He was in Congress. And um, the stories about Rahm, if you don't know them, are pretty legendary. He, um, he sent a, a giant dead fish to a pollster that pissed him off during the Clinton administration. <laughs> Um, He lost half a finger to an Arby's meat slicer and he refused to go to the hospital and then went swimming in Lake Michigan. Um, He went to summer camp in Israel a week after the Six Days War. Um, So he is like, he he became my... Tiny idol. Um, so I was working at the Second City at the time, and I, it, it became sort of my little mini dream to portray uh, Rom on stage. And I got my chance pretty quickly because I was going to be in a show called Barack Stars, where, where I was going to get to play a Ram Emanuel in Washington, D.C., which was both great and also really scary. Great for the obvious reasons. Uh, cool to go to Washington and do a, and do a, a show. Scary because doing – Political comedy in Washington, everyone there knows every single last detail about politics. So you have to really be spot on, or they will totally see right through you. So, you know, I'm really working on my ROM and trying to nail it and making sure I know which hand is the half finger and whatnot. Um, We get there, and the show is a hit. It slays. It is killing. Um, Mark, who you saw earlier, was the director. Uh, It it was awesome. Um, And so it keeps getting extended and extended, and people start coming off the hill to see it. John Kerry, Dick Durbin, Arlen Specter. It's getting great press, and we're thinking, like, maybe, maybe the – The White House will hear about this. Like, maybe they'll be cool and come. Like, Michelle Obama had eaten at a restaurant next door to the theater during our run. We're like, maybe they'll come. Lo and behold, I get to the theater one day as, like, three black Escalades are, like, pulling out. I get inside and find out that the Secret Service had been there to sweep the building because Rahm Emanuel was coming. All right, so not only is Rahm coming – which is mind-blowing in and of itself. But Ram is coming on the same night that my mom and stepdad are driving down from Rhode Island, the smallest state in the country. Um, uh, all my friends from Washington who hadn't been able to get into the show were all coming on this night. It was like a hurricane of people that I wanted validation from We're all going to be in, in, this, in this theater. So the night comes, and it is no there's no mistaking where Rom is, because for security reasons, what they do is they they buy up a ton of seats. So there's like a a seat desert so that if, like, the shit goes down, Secret Service can get right to him. So he's in the middle of this island with his wife, and we're trying to, like, see if he's enjoying the show, and you can't really see his face, but every once in a while, you just see him throw his head back laughing, Um, which makes perfect sense, because when you satirize someone, you take some flaw of theirs and you exploit it, Right. But for Rom, his flaws are like he's too intelligent and too fucking cool and too badass. So he comes off looking like the king of Washington in this show, which is like any tiny person's dream. So of course he fucking loves the whole thing. So we are backstage after the show, like all nervous, like excited about Rom coming back there. And my mom is there, like she's getting to experience this whole thing. And around the corner comes the director of the theater and then the Secret Service. And then fucking Rahm Emanuel. Now I don't know what I was expecting. I I wasn't expecting him to like come and do karate and like start swearing at everyone. But I definitely wasn't. I definitely was not expecting like button-down shirt, white chinos, chucks, um, like super chilled out. Um, by the way, guy next to him dressed identically, who we later learned was his decoy. He's so fucking badass that he has a guy to get shot for him. Like. <laughs> If the shit goes down like it's that guy's job to like fool them into thinking he's wrong. So but Ram just owns this room. He just owns it. He's so calm and cool and I'm never nervous around celebrities. I really don't give a shit. I'm too neurotic. I know that they don't want, ha, want anything to do with me, but I was so excited to meet him. And I shake his hand and I say, it is such an honor to meet you. And I was, it, he was so dismissive with his comment. Not in a mean way, but he just goes, oh, come on. Like, it, like how, is, uh, how the rest of us insecure people do it. He's like, oh, come on. Um. And he takes pictures with the cast and then he wants to take more pictures with just me like doing all of the various like rom poses that I do in the show and then he's showing me more of them and um, like we're hanging out and stuff and then like I'm st- like it's, it's, it's about time for him to go and I'm like stammering like a little girl uh, at a Justin Bieber concert or something and um, I, I think he can tell that I'm sort of a little bit frazzled and he uh, I was so surprised by what he said to me. He goes, hey, ma'am, I came to your show. Um, and I don't think he was trying to flatter me. I think he saw this, like, sycophantic, blabbering, tiny human um, and was actually trying to be instructive. Be- um, because I've spent so much time in my life, like, trying to do things to get noticed. You know, like, trying to, like, accomplish stuff to not feel small. And I think... Rahm Emanuel is Rahm Emanuel because he doesn't look up to anyone. He sees everyone as an equal, and he doesn't let anyone make him feel small, and so
3: he's not. Thank you.
0: Next up, Ruthie Holmes.
3: So I'm 20 years old, or I, I was 20 years old. It wasn't too long ago. And I'm in this Shakespeare program in London right? Jolly old London. And I have this roommate named Cece. Hot name, right? Yeah. Uh, So Cece and I, we go together like two peas in a pod. I am known as that stoner girl. And she's more of the closeted, uh, I I smoke on the weekends sort of thing. But she actually smokes every day with me. So we decide... How fun would it be for spring break to go to Amsterdam? Yeah, Right? Amsterdam. So we get on Ryanair. You know, we book our flights. On Ryanair, we uh, end up in Amsterdam at a hostel. Pretty awesome hostel. We're in a room with uh, 16, 18 other women. Uh, all parts of the world. It's pretty cool. Go down to the coffee houses. Get some marijuana, because what else would you do in the coffee houses? Uh, We make a lot of decisions in Amsterdam over that long weekend, or however long we were there for. I'm not really sure. And, uh, you know, one of the decisions was eating special brownies and going to the Anne Frank house. (laughs) Not the best idea. Um... But eventually, you know, we're coming to the end of the weekend and we're we're saying to each other, you know, wouldn't it be great if we had this quality ganja in London? Because the shit in London which was just that. <laughs> it was just that. So, we're talking to each other, we're in a coffee house, smoking massive joints. And we're like, yeah, we, we should just bring some back, because that... Always ends well. Uh, so we're like, where should we put it? Where should we put the weed that we bring back from Amsterdam? Um, where should we hide it? Because we're flying, you know, we don't want to get stopped by customs. Um, so we, you know, we debate back and forth, back and forth, and we end up deciding to just put it in our backpacks.
0: <laughs>
3: and you know, by backpacks I mean vaginas. So then we're like. I'm thinking to myself, how we can't just stuff it up there. That's not what people do when they're international drug smugglers. They don't just put the actual product up in there. So we were figuring out what to do. We both uh, brought condoms with us because we thought, you know, it was going to be one of those trips. Um, So we we okay. So if you want to know how to uh, pack. you're gonna you're gonna take the product uh, you're gonna crunch it up uh, you know use one of those grinders and you're gonna put it into a plastic baggie you're gonna roll it up real nice and tight, and then you're gonna put that plastic baggie inside a condom and then you're gonna tie a knot in the end of that condom then you're gonna put it in another condom <laughs> just to make sure it's nice and secure. So you're you're putting it in the other condom, you're tying a knot in the end of that condom, and then you're like, wait, how am I going to get it out, right? You cut a tampon string off of a tampon. (laughs) Brilliance, right? So we go to this really nice restaurant in Amsterdam, and we have our our product. It's all rolled up. It's all put in its little um, tube, if you will. And uh, we each go to the bathroom separately, and stuff it in and then we go to the airport right after that i'm paranoid as fuck i don't know what's gonna happen my buzz is wearing off um cc is cool as shit and i couldn't believe it i was like you are acting so cool it it feels a little different than a tampon girls it's not the same feeling just so you know um if you ever get into this situation so um, we're in the airport. We're in the Amsterdam airport. I don't remember what that's called. Uh, and <laughs> down, down the corridor is a dog. I'm not talking like down a ways. It's right here. Like, this, is, this is where the dog is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm standing there, and all of a sudden I just grab her arm. Because so I'm like, that's a dog the dog, the dog's going to sniff the weed that's in her vaginas. So she just turns right around and just walks the other direction. The dog doesn't follow us. We're safe. We get back to London. Yeah. We smoke everyone out. We don't tell them where the weed's been.
0: And finally, me, Kevin McGinn. Very quickly, the best present I ever got for my mother was a song that I wrote for her in 2005. Here's what you need to know. My mother, Patty, had a lot of nicknames for me. One of them was Grown Up Son. And what that means is there were times where she would say things to me and my age was frozen in time. I was always a little boy to her. And even though I was a grown man, there were times she would say things to me or ask me questions where I would turn to her and incredulously, incredulously say, you realize I'm a grown man, right? Hence, grown-up son. Uh, when I was 11 years old, she and I got uh, really sick, and we were quarantined to our house, and she could not go shopping for gifts. It was uh, the two weeks surrounding Christmas. So what she did was she came up with a plan. Uh, much like Kyle's mother, uh, she decided to come up with a scavenger hunt, this little hunt that I would uh, have to find all these presents. But she couldn't go buy presents, so what she did was she took books that we already owned and wrapped them, and then hid them everywhere, and she was so excited. as She she was standing next to me, and I would uh, get my clue, and I'd figure out what it was, and we'd run there to the next thing, and she was so excited as I unwrapped books we already owned. <laughs> and it was just this really kind, really imaginative gesture, and it was just such a sweet thing on her part. But as an 11-year-old kid on Christmas, I fucking hated it. It was so disappointing, Uh, but one of those lessons where, uh, as I got older, I started to see that she had such a great ideal for making the best out of situations, and that was one of those examples of that. Uh, So we cut ahead to 2005. I am living in... Uh, The Atlantic Ocean on a cruise ship, and I was not coming home for that Christmas, but I got a call from her saying that her doctors had told her that this was probably going to be her last Christmas. So because the stakes got raised, uh, I immediately just changed my plans, and I was going to come home to be with her, and because it was going to be her last Christmas, there was some pressure on that to get a gift other than like a gift card. So I wanted to uh, actually do something uh, that I that only I could give her. So uh, I sat and I thought about our relationship, and I just uh, really put some time into it. And for two days, I locked myself in a room and just wrote draft after draft of this song, trying to figure out something that I could give her. And um, uh, Christmas arrives, and I come home, and I immediately play her this song. And she's so very thrilled, and it gets the exact response that I was hoping for. And she'd always request it. And um, and later, if you know this reference, uh, she had a big Bon Voyage party at the end of her life. And I played this song there as well, because she requested it. And uh, this is it. This is the story of the little boy who was always there. The age of 10, with pale skin and unwanted red hair. He was shy on the inside, awkward on the out. Hadn't kissed a girl, not a care in the world, because he didn't know much about. The struggles of a woman, the only one in his life. You see, her life changed and was rearranged, to just a mother, no longer a wife. Well, that hit her pretty hard, and she didn't have time to care. What kept her above was her love of the little boy who was always there. And so she gave him everything. She always put him second to none. And there's only one reason, little boy was her favorite son. Mother and that little boy spent a Christmas long ago with infectious mononucleosis, or mono. It beat the crap out of both of them, literally, figuratively, too. She couldn't shop for gifts, scared of a rift, and she didn't know what else to do. So she used her imagination, a value she instilled. She made him look for some books, but little boy was less than thrilled, because to him they were just books. He couldn't realize the rest. He couldn't see the forest for the trees and make a bad situation the best. Now little boy has gone away, and grew a little more every year. So now his present to you is Grown-Up Son standing here. Grown-Up Son is always here. That's it. That's our show. Thank you to our storytellers Mark Worzeka, Seth Whiteberg, and Ruthie Holmes. Special thanks to Josh Callahan, the Second City Hollywood, and the Comedy Podcast Network for producing the show. If you would ever like to see the live show, Funny Cause It's True is every other Tuesday at 10 p.m., at the Second City Hollywood, located on beautiful and mildly scary Hollywood Boulevard. Funny Cause It's True is on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash funny cause it's true. So come out to the live show, sign up, and you may get chosen to tell a true story on stage. And from there, you may get chosen to be on the podcast. My name is Kevin McGeehan. Thanks for listening. For more funny stuff for your eyes and ears, go to comedypodcastnetwork.com we